Chapter Seventeen, Part Two of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Seventeen, Part Two. Galapagos Archipelago. We will now turn to the order of reptiles, which gives the most striking character to the zoology of these islands. The species are not numerous, but the numbers of individuals of each species are extraordinarily great. There is one small lizard belonging to a South American genus, and two species, and probably more, of the Amplirhynchus, a genus confined to the Galapagos Islands. There is one snake which is numerous. It is identical, as I am informed by M. Burbron, with the Samophis temoniki from Chile. Open footnote. This is stated by Dr. Gunther. Zoological Society, January 24, 1859, to be a peculiar species, not known to inhabit any other country. Close footnote. Of sea turtle, I believe there are more than one species, and of tortoises there are, as we shall presently show, two or three species or races. Of toads and frogs there are none. I was surprised at this, considering how well suited for them the temperate and damp upper woods appeared to be. It recalled to my mind the remark made by Bory St. Vincent, namely that none of this family are found on any of the volcanic islands in the great oceans. As far as I can ascertain from various works, this seems to hold good throughout the Pacific, and even in the large islands of the Sandwich Archipelago. Mauritius offers an apparent exception, where I saw the Rana Mascarienesis in abundance. This frog is said now to inhabit the Seychelles, Madagascar, and Bourbon. But, on the other hand, Dubois, in his voyage in 1669, states that there were no reptiles in Bourbon except tortoises. And the officer de Roy asserts that, before 1768, it had been attempted, without success, to introduce frogs into Mauritius, I presume for the purpose of eating. Hence it may be well doubted whether this frog is an aboriginal of these islands. The absence of the frog family in the oceanic islands is the more remarkable, when contrasted with the case of lizards, which swarm on most of the smallest islands. May this difference not be caused by the great facility with which the eggs of lizards, protected by calcareous shells, might be transported through salt water, then could the slimy spawn of frogs. I will first describe the habits of the tortoise. Tetsudo nigra, formerly called indica, which has been so frequently alluded to. These animals are found, I believe, on all the islands of the archipelago, certainly on the greater number. They frequent in preference the high damp parts, but they likewise live in the lower and arid districts. I have already shown, from the numbers which have been caught in a single day, how very numerous they must be. Some grow to an immense size. 
Mr. Lawson, an Englishman, and vice-governor of the colony, told us that he had seen several so large that it required six or eight men to lift them from the ground, and that some had afforded as much as two hundred pounds of meat. The old males are the largest, the females rarely growing to so great a size. The male can be readily distinguished from the female by the greater length of its tail. The tortoises which live on those islands where there is no water, or in the lower and arid parts of the others, feed chiefly on the succulent cactus. Those which frequent the higher and damp regions eat the leaves of various trees, a kind of berry called guayvita, which is acid and austere, and likewise a pale green filamentous lichen, usner placata, that hangs from the boughs of the trees. The tortoise is very fond of water, drinking large quantities and wallowing in the mud. The larger islands alone possesses springs, and these are always situated towards the central parts and at a considerable height. The tortoises, therefore, which frequent the lower districts, when thirsty are obliged to travel from a long distance. Hence broad and well-beaten paths branch off in every direction from the wells down to the sea coast and the Spaniards, by following them up, first discovered the watering-places. When I landed at Chatham Island, I could not imagine what animal travelled so methodically along well-chosen tracks. Near the springs it was a curious spectacle to behold many of these huge creatures, one set eagerly travelling outwards, with outstretched necks, and another set returning, after having drunk their fill. When the tortoise arrives at the spring, quite regardless of any spectator, he buries his head in the water above his eyes, and greedily swallows great mouthfuls, at the rate of about ten in a minute. The inhabitants say each animal stays three or four days in the neighbourhood of the water, and then returns to the lower country. But they differed respecting the frequency of these visits. The animal probably regulates them according to the nature of the food on which it has lived. It is, however, certain that tortoises can subsist even on these islands where there is no other water than what falls during a few rainy days in the year. I believe it is well ascertained that the bladder of the frog acts as a reservoir for the moisture necessary to its existence. Such seems to be the case with the tortoise. For some time after a visit to the springs, their urinary bladders are distended with fluid, which is said gradually to decrease in volume and to become less pure. The inhabitants, when walking in the lower district, and overcome with thirst, often take advantage of these circumstances, and drink the contents of the bladder if full. In one I saw killed, the fluid was quite limpid, and had only a very slightly bitter taste. The inhabitants, however, always first drink the water in the pericardium, which is described as being best. The tortoises, when purposely moving towards any point, travel by night and day, and arrive at their journey's end much sooner than would be expected. The inhabitants, from observing marked individuals, consider that they travel a distance of about eight miles in two or three days, 
one large tortoise, which I watched, walked at a rate of sixty yards in ten minutes, that is, three hundred and sixty yards in the hour, or four miles in a day, allowing a little time for it to eat on the road. During the breeding season, when the male and female are together, the male utters a hoarse roar or bellowing, which, it is said, can be heard at the distance of more than a hundred yards. The female never uses her voice, and the male only at these times, so that when the people hear this noise, they know that the two are together. They were at this time, October, laying their eggs. The female, where the soil is sandy, deposits them together and covers them up with sand, but where the ground is rocky she drops them indiscriminately in any hole. Mr. Benoe found seven placed in a fissure. The egg is white and spherical. One which I measured was seven inches and three-eighths in circumference, and therefore larger than a hen's egg. The young tortoises, as soon as they are hatched, fall a prey in great numbers to the carrion-feeding buzzards. The old ones seem generally to die from accidents, as from falling down precipices. At least several of the inhabitants told me that they never found one dead without some evident cause. The inhabitants believe that these animals are absolutely deaf. Certainly they do not overhear a person walking close behind them. I was always amused when overtaking one of these great monsters, as it was quietly pacing along, to see how suddenly, the instant I passed, it would draw in its head and legs, and uttering a deep hiss fall to the ground with a heavy sound, as if struck dead. I frequently got on their backs, and then, giving a few raps on the hinder part of their shells, they would rise up and walk away, but I found it very difficult to keep my balance. The flesh of this animal is largely employed, both fresh and salted, and a beautifully clear oil is prepared from the fat. When a tortoise is caught, the man makes a slit in the skin near its tail, so as to see inside its body, whether the fat under the dorsal plate is thick. If it is not, the animal is liberated, and it is said to recover soon from this strange operation. In order to secure the tortoise, it is not sufficient to turn them like turtle, for they are often able to get on their legs again. There can be little doubt that this tortoise is an aboriginal inhabitant of the Galapagos, for it is found on all, or nearly all, the islands, even on some of the smaller ones where there is no water. Had it been an imported species, this would hardly have been the case, in a group which has been so little frequented. Moreover, the old buccaneers found this tortoise in greater numbers even than at present. Wood and Rogers also, in 1708, say that it is the opinion of the Spaniards that it is found nowhere else in this quarter of the world. It is now widely distributed, but it may be questioned whether it is in any other place in Aboriginal. The bones of a tortoise at Mauritius, associated with those of the extinct dodo, have generally been considered as belonging to this tortoise. If this had been so, undoubtedly it must have been there indigenous. 
but Mr. Burbron informs me that he believes that it was distinct, as the species now living there certainly is. The Amplirhynchus, a remarkable genus of lizards, is confined to this archipelago. There are two species, resembling each other in general form, one being terrestrial and the other aquatic. This latter species, A. cristatus, was first characterized by Mr. Bell, who well foresaw, from its short broad head, and strong claws of equal length, that its habits of life would turn out very peculiar, and different from those of its nearest ally, the iguana. It is extremely common on all the islands throughout the group, and lives exclusively on the rocky sea-beaches, being never found, at least I never saw one, even ten yards in shore. It is a hideous-looking creature of a dirty black colour, stupid and sluggish in its movements. The usual length of a full-grown one is about a yard, but there are some even four feet long. A large one weighed twenty pounds. On the island of Albemarle, they seem to grow to a greater size than elsewhere. Their tails are flattened sideways, and all four feet are partially webbed. They are occasionally seen some hundred yards from the shore, swimming about. And Captain Colnett, in his voyage, says, They go to sea in herds of fishing, and sun themselves on the rocks, and may be called alligators in miniature. It must not, however, be supposed that they live on fish. When in the water this lizard swims with perfect ease and quickness, by a serpentine movement of its body and flattened tail, the legs being motionless and closely collapsed on its sides. A seaman on board sank one, with a heavy weight attached to it, thinking thus to kill it directly. But when, an hour afterwards, he drew up the line, it was quite active. Their limbs and strong claws are admirably adapted for crawling over the rugged and fissured masses of lava, which everywhere form the coast. In such situations a group of six or seven of these hideous reptiles may oftentimes be seen on the black rocks, a few feet above the surf, basking in the sun with outstretched legs. I opened the stomachs of several and found them largely distended with minced seaweed, alvae, which grows in thin, fallacious expansions, of a bright green or a dull red colour. I do not recollect having observed this seaweed in any quantity on the tidal rocks, and I have reason to believe it grows at the bottom of the sea, at some little distance from the coast. If such be the case, the object of these animals occasionally going out to the sea is explained. The stomach contains nothing but the seaweed. Mr. Benoit, however, found a piece of crab in one, but this might have got in accidentally, in the same manner as I have seen a caterpillar, in the midst of some lichen, in the paunch of a tortoise. The intestines were large, as in other herbivorous animals. The nature of this lizard's food, as well as the structure of its tail and feet, and the fact of its having been seen voluntarily swimming out at sea, absolutely prove its aquatic habits. Yet there is, in this respect, one strange anomaly, 
namely that, when frightened, it will not enter the water. Hence it is easy to drive these lizards down to any little point overhanging the sea, where they will sooner allow a person to catch hold of their tails than jump into the water. They do not seem to have any notion of biting, but, when much frightened, they squirt a drop of fluid from each nostril. I threw one several times as far as I could, into a deep pool left by the retiring tide, but it invariably returned in a direct line to the spot where I stood. It swam near the bottom with a very graceful and rapid movement, and occasionally aided itself over the uneven ground with its feet. As soon as it arrived near the edge, but still being under water, it tried to conceal itself in the tufts of seaweed, or it entered some crevice. As soon as it thought the danger was past, it crawled out on the dry rocks, and shuffled away as quickly as it could. I several times caught this same lizard by driving it down to a point, and though possessed of such perfect powers of diving and swimming, nothing would induce it to enter the water. And as often as I threw it in, it returned in the manner above described. Perhaps this singular piece of apparent stupidity may be accounted for by the circumstance that this reptile has no enemy whatever on shore, whereas at sea it must often fall a prey to the numerous sharks. Hence, probably, urged by a fixed and hereditary instinct, that the shore is its place of safety, whatever the emergency may be, it there takes refuge. During our visit in October, I saw extremely few small individuals of this species, and none I should think under a year old. From this circumstance it seems probable that the breeding season had not then commenced. I asked several of the inhabitants if they knew where it laid its eggs. They said that they knew nothing of its propagation, although well acquainted with the eggs of the land kind. A fact, considering how very common this lizard is, not a little extraordinary. We will now turn to the terrestrial species, A. Damali, with a round tail and toes without webs. This lizard, instead of being found like the other on all the islands, is confined to the central part of the archipelago, namely to Albemarle, James, Barrington, and indefatigable islands. To the southward, in Charles, Hood, and Chatham Islands, and to the northward, in Towers, Bindlows, and Abingdon, I neither saw nor heard of any. It would appear as if it had been created in the centre of the archipelago, and thence had been distributed only to a certain distance. Some of these lizards inhabit the high and damp parts of the island, but they are much more numerous in the lower and sterile districts near the coast. I cannot give a more forcible proof of their numbers than by stating that when we were left at James Island, we could not for some time find a spot free from their burrows on which to pitch our single tent. Like their brothers the sea kind, they are ugly animals, of a yellowish-orange beneath, and of a brownish-red colour above. From their low facial angle, they have a singularly stupid appearance. They are, perhaps, of a rather less size than the marine species, 
but several of them weighed between ten and fifteen pounds. In their movements they are lazy and half-torpid. When not frightened, they slowly crawl along with their tails and bellies dragging on the ground. They often stop, and doze for a minute or two with closed eyes and hind legs spread out on the parched soil. They inhabit burrows, which they sometimes make between fragments of lava, but more generally on level patches of the soft sandstone-like tuff. The holes do not appear to be very deep, and they enter the ground at a small angle, so that when walking over these lizard warrens, the soil is constantly giving way, much to the annoyance of the tired walker. Works alternatively the opposite sides of its body. One front leg for a short time scratches up the soil, and throws it toward the hind foot, which is well placed so as to heave it beyond the mouth of the hole. That side of the body being tired, the other takes up the task, and so on alternatively. I watched one for a long time, till half its body was buried. I then walked up and pulled it by the tail. At this it was greatly astonished, and soon shuffled up to see what was the matter, and then stared me in the face, as much as to say, What made you pull my tail? They feed by day, and do not wander far from their burrows. If frightened, they rush to them with a most awkward gait. Except when running downhill, they cannot move very fast, apparently from the lateral position of their legs. They are not at all timorous. When attentively watching any one, they curl their tails, and, raising themselves on their front legs, nod their heads vertically with a quick movement, and try to look very fierce. But in reality they are not at all so. If one stamps on the ground, down go their tails, and off they shuffle as quickly as they can. I have frequently observed small, fly-eating lizards, when, watching anything, nod their heads in precisely the same manner, but I do not know at all for what purpose. If this amblyrhynchus is held and plagued with a stick, it will bite it very severely. But I caught many by the tail, and they never tried to bite me. If two are placed on the ground and held together, they will fight, and bite each other till blood is drawn. The individuals, and they are the greater number, which inhabit the lower country, can scarcely taste a drop of water throughout the year. But they consume much of the succulent cactus, the branches of which are occasionally broken off by the wind. I several times threw a piece to two or three of them when together, and it was amusing enough to see them trying to seize and carry it away in their mouths, like so many hungry dogs with a bone. They eat very deliberately, but do not chew their food. The little birds are aware how harmless these creatures are. I have seen one of the thick-billed finches, picking at one end of a piece of cactus, which is much relished by all the animals of the lower region, whilst a lizard was eating at the other end. And afterwards the little bird, with the utmost indifference, hopped on the back of the reptile. I opened the stomachs of several, and found them full of vegetable fibres and leaves of different trees, especially of an acacia. In the upper region they live chiefly on the acid and astringent berries of the guivita, 
under which trees I have seen these lizards and the huge tortoises feeding together. To obtain the acacia leaves, they crawl up the low stunted trees, and it is not uncommon to see a pair quietly browsing, while seated on a branch several feet above the ground. These lizards, when cooked, yield a white meat, which is liked by those whose stomachs soar above all prejudices. Humboldt has remarked that in intertropical South America, all lizards which inhabit dry regions are esteemed delicacies for the table. The inhabitants state that those which inhabit the upper damp parts drink water, but that the others do not, like the tortoises, travel up for it from the lower sterile country. At the time of our visit, the females had within their bodies numerous, large, elongated eggs, which they lay in their burrows. The inhabitants seek them for food. These two species of Amplorhynchus agree, as I have already stated, in their general structure, and in many of their habits. Neither have that rapid movement, so characteristic of the genera Lacerta and Iguana. They are both herbivorous although the kind of vegetation on which they feed is so very different. Mr. Bell has given the name to the genus from the shortness of the snout. Indeed, the form of the mouth may almost be compared to that of the tortoise. One is led to suppose that this is an adaptation to the herbivorous appetites. It is very interesting thus to find a well-characterized genus, having its marine and terrestrial species, belonging to so confined a portion of the world. The aquatic species is by far the most remarkable, because it is the only existing lizard which lives on marine vegetable productions. As I at first observed, these islands are not so remarkable for the number of species of reptiles as for that of the individuals, when we remember the well-beaten paths made by the thousand of huge tortoises, the many turtles, the great warrens of the terrestrial Amparynchus, and the groups of the marine species basking on the coast rocks of every island. We must admit that there is no other quarter of the world where this order replaces the herbivorous mammalia in so extraordinary a manner. The geologist, on hearing this, will probably refer back in his mind to the secondary epoch, when lizards, some herbivorous, some carnivorous, and of dimensions comparable only with our existing whales, swarmed on the land and in the sea. It is therefore worthy of his observation that this archipelago, instead of possessing a humid climate and rank vegetation, cannot be considered otherwise than extremely arid, and, for an equatorial region, remarkably temperate. To finish with the zoology, the fifteen kinds of sea-fish which I procured here are all new species. They belong to twelve genera, all widely distributed, with the exception of Prionotus, of which the four previously known species live on the eastern side of America. Of land shells I collected sixteen kinds, and two marked varieties, of which, with the exception of one helix found at Tahiti, all other are peculiar to this archipelago. A single freshwater shell, Paludina, is common to Tahiti and Van Diemsland. Mr. Cumming, before our voyage, procured here ninety species of seashells, and this does not include several species not yet specifically examined, 
of Trochus, Turbo, Monodonta, and Nasa. He has been kind enough to give me the following interesting results. Of the ninety shells, no less than forty-seven are unknown elsewhere. A wonderful fact, considering how widely distributed sea-shells generally are. Of the forty-three shells found in other parts of the world, twenty-five inhabit the western coast of America, and of these eight are distinguishable as varieties. The remaining eighteen, including one variety, was found by Mr. Cumming in the low archipelago, and some of them also at the Philippines. This fact of shells from islands in the central parts of the Pacific occurring here deserves notice, for not one single seashell is known to be common to the islands of that ocean and to the west coast of America. The space of open sea running north and south of the west coast separates two quite distinct conchological provinces. But at the Galapagos archipelago we have a halting place, where many new forms are being created, and whither these two great conchological provinces have each sent up several colonists. The American province has also sent here representative species, for there is a Galapagian species of Monoceros, a genus only found on the west coast of America, and there are Galapagian species of Fischerellia and Cancerellia, genera common on the west coast, but not found, as I am informed by Mr. Cumming, in the central islands of the Pacific. On the other hand, there are Galapagian species of Onesia and Stifler, genera common to the West Indies and to the Chinese and Indian seas, but not found either on the west coast of America or in the central Pacific. I may here add that after the comparison by Messrs. Cumming and Hines of about two thousand shells from the eastern and western coasts of America, only one single shell was found in common namely, the Papura Petula, which inhabits the West Indies, the coast of Panama, and the Galapagos. We have, therefore, in this quarter of the world, three great conchological sea provinces, quite distinct, though surprisingly near each other, being separated by long north and south spaces, either of land or of open sea. I took great pains in collecting the insects, but except in the Tierra del Fuego, I never saw in this respect so poor a country. Even in the upper and damp region I procured very few. Except in some minute diptera and hymnoptera, mostly of common mundane forms. As before remarked, the insects, for a tropical region, are of a very small size and dull colours. Of beetles I collected twenty-five species, excluding a domestis, and cornetus imported, wherever a ship touches. Of these, two belong to the Harpolidae, two to the Hydrophilidae, nine to three families of the Heteromera, and the remaining twelve to as many different families. This circumstance of insects, and I may add plants, where few in number, belonging to many different families, is, I believe, very general. Mr. Waterhouse, who has published an account of the insects of this archipelago, and to whom I am indebted for the above details, informs me that there are several new genera, 
and that of the genera not new, one or two are American, and the rest of mundane distribution. With the exception of the wood-feeding apate, and of one or probably two water-beetles from the American continent, all the species appear to be new. End of chapter 17, part 2